With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is Know It All. Welcome to Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education. Many thanks again to D.C. High School student Trayvon for our theme music. We aim to make you, our listeners, know-it-alls about education law, policy, and practice that affect you. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash know-it-all. Today's show is a featured show on the Blog Talk Radio website. Be sure to follow us at blogtalkradio.com. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I am a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity and public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Know It All is sponsored by The Root DC, part of the Washington Post family. The Root DC focuses on news for and about African Americans in the DC region. You can find episodes of Know It All and my blog post after each show on my website and on the Root DC website at therootdc.com. I am honored to introduce my guest today, Dr. Pedro Noguera, the Peter L. Agnew Professor of Education at NYU. A sociologist, researcher, and author, he has written the seminal work, The Trouble with Black Boys, and Other Reflections on Race, Equity, and the Future of Public Education. Good morning, Pedro. Welcome. Good morning, uh, Allison. It's great to be there with you. So I want to jump right in. Um, There's a lot of buzz about education reform efforts these days. We're talking, you know, vouchers for private school and closing public schools and standardized testing, race to the top. But we haven't seen tremendous gains in academic performance of American students or in their life successes, particularly for children of color. Where do you think education reform has gone wrong? Well, I think the big problem is we aren't addressing the kind of the, the underlying issues. Um, fact is, it shouldn't be so hard to educate children, uh, even poor children. Uh, being poor is not a learning disability, and and it's very clear that all kinds of children, black children, children with learning disabilities, children who don't speak English as their first language, all children can learn if you create the right conditions, if you provide them with um, educators who are skilled in, in, in how to meet their needs. And I'd say that part of big part of what we're not doing is focusing on those conditions, how to create those conditions in schools that are conducive to learning, uh, how to make sure we have capable educators in the classroom, and how to make sure that the basic needs of our children, uh, and by that I mean needs like health, nutrition, housing, are also being addressed because the simple fact is hungry children don't do well in school, and we have children out there who are having trouble reading because they need eyeglasses. 
Uh, we've ignored many of the basic needs that children uh, bring with them, and that's one of the reasons why poor children end up uh, struggling so badly. But the other side of it is we often put them in schools that are real, simply not conducive to learning. They're dysfunctional, they're disorganized, they're not well-managed, and uh, they they don't provide the opportunity to learn that our children need. Mm-hmm. Now, I live in Washington, D.C., where the, the charter movement is running roughshod over traditional public schools, often with, with little regard for the fact that no matter what, the schools are educating the same children, and it is the children who suffer when we plow ahead without thinking. I also live not far from Capitol Hill, where legislators are considering the No Child Left Behind Act and its re- reauthorization. And I just imagine, you know, what if we took a step back and just examined those things that really work for all students? What are those things that, that you know work well to support students living in poverty and students of color? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, and these ideas have been around for a long time. There's just a study released from Chicago called Organizing Schools for Improvement, and it examines the reforms that took place there over a 10-year period. Much of that time, uh, Arne Duncan, the current Secretary of Education, was the superintendent of Chicago Public Schools. And the question they asked in this report is, why did some schools improve and other schools not? Um, and they look at the 100 schools that never made improvement. In fact, in many cases, they, they uh, declined in performance. And what they find is that in these schools, the essential ingredients, namely strong, effective leadership, uh, a coherent curriculum, um, professional development for teachers that's tailored to help them meet the needs of their students, parent and community engagement, that these supports and safety and order in the schools were not present in those schools. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that, that these are exactly what we need in our schools. What is troubling and I think, um, it, it, from, my, from my standpoint, extremely frustrating, is that our policymakers don't focus on these conditions. We focus instead on gimmicks. We keep thinking that there's a panacea out there, that if we simply do one thing, if we simply uh, create charter schools, or now let's just shut down schools, that we will somehow um, solve all these problems. In the meantime, the basic things we need, we know that we need to do, we are ignoring. And consequently, we spend a lot of money in the name of fixing schools, but don't get uh, the results that uh, we so desperately need. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot, too, about achievement gaps. And um, several people have said, you know, we're talking actually more about an opportunity gap or an exposure gap. And you mentioned that there are ways to educate children living in poverty um, that are the same things that we utilize to children who have access to privilege. Um, Will you talk about socioeconomic status and its impact on educational opportunity? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things we've really not addressed is the fact that the achievement gap that we talk of um, about so often is really largely about inequality. Uh, what's driving student outcomes, what's driving achievement patterns, what's driving what college students enroll in and how well they do there is, to a large degree, the family background. If you come from a middle-class family with college-educated parents, you have huge advantages over low-income children, not because those children don't have the ability, but because 
affluent parents are able to provide more for their kids. They're able to uh, get those kids private tutors if they need it. They're able to get them into summer camps. They're able to get them music lessons. They're able to get their braces if they need them. These are all crucial to a child's development. What we see for many poor children is that essential ingredients, namely nutrition, health, are not there, much less that they're not getting help with the homework. They're not getting the same kind of exposure to the broader world. And all of that affects um, who succeeds and who doesn't succeed. Now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do because unless you can change it. Because although it's true that parents play a critical role, it's also true that if we did things like provide access to quality preschool and we provided access to, to um, high-quality after-school and summer programs, we could compensate better than we do now for the disadvantages that certain children bring. And that's really what we should be focused on. Um, but we, to do that, you need to acknowledge the barriers and the obstacles that certain children come to school with. And uh, that, I think, is not part of the um, equation right now. Mm-hmm. And for those educators who say, you know, it, it, it's not my job, you know, in the meantime, you know, while we wait for these resources to be dedicated to those things that we work, it's not my job to make sure that children are fed, and it's not my job to make sure that they are um, safe on the walk home um, from school. What do you say to educators who, who make that argument? Well, it, to be fair, it's not the job of the classroom teacher. Um, the classroom teacher's job is to do the best job he or she can do in the classroom, and it's not fair to put that on them. However, it is the job of the leadership, right, whether, in the, uh, whether it be the school, the board of education, the superintendent, the people running the system have to take that bigger picture into mind when they think about educating children. So I wouldn't put this on the back of teachers. I think we put a lot of responsibility on teachers, and right now there's a tendency to blame teachers for all the problems in public education. Um, but I do think that our policymakers, and, and I don't just mean superintendents, I mean beyond uh, superintendents, the mayors have to be uh, play more of a role um, rather than pointing fingers, have to do a much better job of creating an environment that's conducive to children succeeding in ac- academically and growing up healthy lives. Uh, many of our kids are scared to come to walk to and from school because the neighborhood's not safe. That's not something that schools can address by themselves. They have to work with the uh, the city to ensure safety and to ensure that kids have access to safe parks and recreational opportunities. You can't put all this on the schools. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that you're you're absolutely right that, you know, the leadership has to, to step up. And I think that what we're seeing is a grassroots movement that is involving all of the stakeholders. So, you know, building leadership, school building leadership, administrative leadership, parents and students are are stepping up and they're they're demanding change. You know, I um when I was an attorney for the Department of Justice and the Civil Rights Division, I would often say that it, it the civil rights movement is what sparked the change that came about in, in the form of the title, 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 you know, Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, but it is that that movement that is necessary to back the federal government into a corner to make change. Um, and you know, there was a Washington Post piece um, on Sunday about parents all over the country in Seattle, Texas, and Florida uh, who are opting out of standardized tests, and they are. Um, you know, refusing to allow their children to participate in these tests, and, and students are taking up this mantle and have taken up this mantle of of resisting these tests and uh, are joining forces with educators. 
What are your thoughts about standardized testing and education reform? Well, I think that um, we are using it completely wrong. Um, you know, assessment um, and uh, is is essential, right? We need to test our children to make sure they've learned the material, that they're making real progress. So I'm not against testing. What I'm against is the way we're using it right now. What we're doing in most places is we're using tests to rank children and, by extension, to rank their schools and, in some cases, rank their teachers. And um, what we should be doing is we should be using tests to evaluate and whether or not children are getting their needs met and then using the results of those tests to give teachers clear guidance on what they need to do, what they need to focus on with those students. Um, what Right now what happens is we test the children typically in the spring and give the results back to the teachers in the fall when they no longer have the students. Um, this is, is completely, um, I think, uh, an inappropriate use of testing. What's more is we make major decisions about a child based on how well they perform on a single test, right, uh, about, you know, how well they can read or, or uh, where they should be placed in high school, when, in fact, what we know is that, that in many cases the test is not an accurate uh, uh, reporting of, of a child's ability. There are many kids who may not be motivated to take the test, don't take it seriously, or who are distracted, they didn't get sleep the night before. We shouldn't be using tests in those ways. And what's happened since No Child Behind and um, the current administration, I think, has, 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 has continued on this path, is we have created um, so much emphasis on t testing that we're creating an environment um, in many uh, districts where cheating is more likely, and D.C. is a district that has had a problem with that issue as well. Mm -hmm. That's true. And, um, you know, we hear a lot about test punish and push out. And, you know, the tests also generate um, a mindset that if we can just get these certain kids out of the school building, then, you know, our test scores will be okay. Um, will you speak a little bit about student discipline and, and what you're seeing with respect to student discipline and if, they, if you have seen any connection between student discipline and standardized testing? Well, Discipline has been an issue for a long time, particularly in urban districts where we have, um, you know, a certain number of children who come to school um, and and whose behavior is a problem for learning for the for other children to learn and pose a problem in the schools. Um, now, some of those children, you know, you have to be really careful. Some of those children have unmet needs. Um, they may have, um, you know, substance abusing parents, or they themselves might have mental illness. Issues. So I would say that the key is to figure out what's behind the behavior problems, right, uh, so that we can actually get to the source. Um, but in many schools, um, we're not doing that. And, and often what happens is you have a behavior problem with one child, and uh, that ends up um, influencing and um, the whole environment and making it difficult for others um, to, to, to concentrate and also bringing out bad behavior in other children. So... Um, I would say discipline uh, is, a, is a huge issue in many urban districts um, and contributes to some of the learning problems. The, the testing, I think, is a related problem. I, I wouldn't blame testing for the discipline problems. I think um, that they are uh, separate issues. But I do think that because we put so much emphasis on te testing 
uh, in recent years. We have really um, not sufficiently addressed what does quality teaching look like, how do we create uh, stimulating classrooms and, and lessons that will engage kids, and that's where they are related because children who are engaged academically, kids who are motivated, kids who are on task, will be less likely to act out. And and what we should be doing in school is putting much more emphasis on how to create learning environments where children are uh, excited about uh, what they're what's before them and and willing learners, um, rather than putting the emphasis on uh, getting kids to prepare for tests. That often leads to um, a boring instruction and 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 the kind of distraction we see in many schools. Mm-hmm. And you know, to your point about school climate and school culture and engaging students, um, gun control and school safety have been at the front of people's minds lately. Um, The Advancement Project released a a school safety report just a few weeks ago that intentionally did not include guns and police and focused instead on, on exactly that, school culture, school climate, keeping students and families engaged and invested in the school building, um, and if we're thinking of school safety from a student perspective, in other words, making sure that the children are protected rather than policed, how do you think that we should be focused on on protecting our children in school? Well, you know, it, it really depends on the context. If, if a school is in an unsafe neighborhood uh, where there is violence, um, then you do have to take measures to make sure that strangers can't enter the building, um, and you might even have to put in metal detectors or have armed guards. I, I, you know, I, it's not something I readily support, but the fact is that some neighborhoods are unsafe and require that level of security. Um, I, but ultimately what we have to recognize is that safety is a product of relationships. Uh, children are safer when the adults around them know who they are, are attentive to what's going on, where everyone from the custodian to the secretary is is paying attention um, and vigilant about what's happening within the school. Um, It is a sad statement, you know, when you think about Newtown or when you think about some of the other school shootings that have taken place, Columbine, et cetera, um, uh, often what what, what was going on, at least in Columbine, was they didn't know the students. They didn't realize the threats that were going on amongst the children, um, and a lot could have been done to prevent that. In the case of Newtown, I don't think there's much that could have been done when you have a, um, a mentally deranged person with we- easy access to weapons. Um, he could just as easily shot up a, a mall or a church. Um, mm-hmm. He just chose the school because it was a place where there were vulnerable people. So, I mean, I, I think what we have to always be careful of is um, not sacrificing uh, our civil liberties for the sake of security. Um, on the one hand, we want we want our children to be safe. We all want to be safe. On the other hand, we don't want our schools to start to look like prisons, uh, where we put so much emphasis on security that we end up uh, creating an environment where uh, no one wants to be because we, they're 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 so it's so restrictive and so invasive in terms of um, uh, the, the way in which children are being treated that um, it no longer meets their learning needs. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, Pedro? How do you think that schools can um, meaningfully engage parents and families in school and in in the educational process in a way that's more than kind of a, um, you know, we invite you in for a token um, uh, diversity dinner or something, you know, potluck. Um, but how do how do 
how to really get meaningful engagement from from parents and families? Well, the key is to first of all, it starts. I mean, it sound might sound trite, but you you have to believe that it's important. You have to believe that parents must be partners in the process. If you believe that's true, then you'll treat parents with respect. You will treat. You will make an effort to to do outreach to them. Um, you'll invite them in. Um, you'll you'll be creative in how you engage them. Um, I, I work with a school. They started a, a program to get fathers in, um, where they break, they do breakfast um, once a month with fathers, dads, and donuts. They I work with another school. Uh, they use basketball uh, as a way to bring fathers in. I say fathers because in most schools you're much less likely to see the fathers than you do the mothers. Um, it's a question of of, of priority, um, and it's also a question of of preparing the educators to engage parents with respect, to be willing to listen, uh, to not judge um, parents, but also to um, be willing to have the hard conversations with them that are so essential to addressing the children's needs. So, um, you know, when you look at the schools that do it right, um, it looks easy. Uh, and the reason why it looks easy is because what underlies the, the partnership with the parents is trust and respect. Uh, when you look at the schools where there's antagonistic relations and where parents don't come out or when they do come, um, there's hostility uh, and, and, and strain, uh, it's usually because respect and trust are missing. So uh, those key ingredients are essential to building a partnership. And um and and you know the the truth of the, the matter is that if you look at the children who are doing best in school, you will always see parental support there. Uh, it's very rare to find a child who succeeds who doesn't receive parental support. So so getting parents more involved is a key part of changing outcomes for kids and getting kids to do better because you need parents who are reinforcing at home the importance of learning so that children come to school better prepared and more willing to engage. Mm-hmm. How important would you say it is to for schools to be recruiting um, teachers and staff of color in their in their building? Well, it's essential. If you're, um, you know, even for, it's particularly essential if you're serving a predominantly, um, you know, a, a student population that's predominantly student of color. Um, the, the children need to see role models. They need to see adults. Uh, from their background, who are in professional roles, so they have a sense of what's possible. It also helps just in terms of um, of being able to relate to children and and be able to, being able to build strong uh, relationships so that children understand that the people uh, who are teaching them also care about them. And that's not to say there aren't white teachers who can do those things. There there, there certainly are, um, but they still need to see a diverse cross section of role models. Um, people, particularly people who understand what their lives are like outside of school, so that there's a, 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 an ability to bridge that gap between home and school um, that often uh, people who share a background with the children can do more easily. Um, but I would add that even in predominantly white schools, it's important to have diverse faculty because white children need to be exposed to people of color in professional roles. It helps to change their attitudes and to create a more uh, a, a, a more less biased perspective on the world. So this is not something that's just necessary for children of color. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that that's one of the uh, lessons that we've learned from Brown v. Board is that we have to be focused not on uh, doing charity work or doing a favor to 
um, you know, communities of color, but that diversity serves us all and it serves all of our best interests. And um, I think that that was the message that was left on the floor during, you know, part of the compromise of in creating the Brown v. Board strategy, um, and that has left us where we are now with, with you know, thinking about um, Fisher v. Texas, the um, Supreme Court case that um, we'll probably see a ruling in the next few weeks um, about affirmative action in higher education and, and uh, you know, this notion of integration um, as as a viable thing has been slowly whittled away um, by the courts, and um, I, I feel like the federal policy and uh, rhetoric has followed suit. What, what is your thought about integration? Well, it's it's interesting. Um, in the last major ruling, the Michigan case that came before the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was the decisive vote that ruled that we still needed to consider race uh, in admissions decisions. And what was important about her vote was uh, what she said. She said she hoped, she said it's clear that race still matters in schools, but she hoped that in 30 years that we could move away and, and end up with race-blind policies. Well, we have to ask ourselves, what would it take for us to do that? Because we might all say, yeah, it shouldn't be that you have to consider a student's race. You should just really consider how well-prepared they are when you consider them for admission. However, as you've just pointed out, we continue to have racially segregated schools. Not only are they segregated by race, they, we concentrate the poorest children in the worst schools. We tend to um, fund those schools less well than we do schools in affluent areas. Uh, we don't provide the, the kind of learning support the kids need. And so, you know, we, we set kids up from the very beginning. So I would say that, um, you know, if you don't pay attention to uh, to creating equitable learning opportunities from pre-kindergarten through high school, then how can you pretend we have equity come college? And that's what the court is really being, should should be forced to grapple with. Have we really done the work of the Brown decision? And I would say the answer is very clear that we have not. We have not created an equal opportunity to learn in this country. Um, in our public schools. And so affirmative action is needed as much today as it was when it was first implemented in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. When you talk about equitable outcomes, what is the difference between equity and uh, equal opportunity or equality? Um, equity is about um, not simply uh treating everyone the same. It is about acknowledging the differences, right, and doing what we can to meet the needs of different children in light of those differences, right, um, and, and, and with, a, with a deliberate focus on results and outcomes. So I, I'll, I'll think an analogy might be um, if you have – I have five children, okay, mm-hmm. um, and they are all different, different ages, different personalities, different – uh, talents, etc. Um, when my older son was going to school, I used to hold his hand longer than I held his sister's hand, even though she was younger. That was because he was shy. And um, he was just not as willing to just jump out there in the playground with his friends. I didn't give him more time and attention because I loved him anymore, simply because I knew that's what he needed. 
I have another child who needs glasses. So I spend more money on that child for his eyes than I do on the others. Because Mm -hmm. as a parent, I know that he's got to see. Equity is not about treating them all the same. It's about recognizing that our children have different needs. And we've got to find ways to the degree that we can, right? Because we don't live in a perfect world, so we have limited resources. But to the degree that we can, we've got to address those needs. And uh, equity is a very, very important principle, but it's a principle that I think gets lost. Um, We practice inequity in most of what we do in education. Um, It tends to be that those who have the least get the least in schools. They get the least qualified teachers. They get the least challenging curriculum, um, and they often don't get their needs met. So it's a principle and a value that I think is essential for really making the kind of progress we need uh, in education in this country. That's right. Yeah, and and we practice inequity in the name of equality and and equal opportunity and equal protection under the law, um, but but the end result is is inequitable practices. Um, my guest today is Dr. Pedro Noguera, the Peter L. Agnew Professor of Education at NYU, and author of The Trouble with Black Boys and Other Reflections on Race, Equity, and the Future of Public Education. Thank you so much for joining me, Pedro. This was a pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. You are now officially certified know-it-alls on the Trouble with Education reform. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook. And read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.